a couple of housekeeping notes this morning, or at least one. Um, I've been doing the sermon handout that some of you have a copy of it. Um, well, today, and today only, we have a deal for you. And that deal is you get to see my entire sermon notes. Um, I send it to a, a certain editor that I have, and, and he uh, failed to inform me that I, he said, this is really long. It's taking me a lot more time than normal. And I thought, okay, well, maybe I, I guess I put more scripture in there than, than, um, than I thought. But it ended up being that I had, had sent him, by mistake, the entire sermon out, or the, the sermon notes. I mean, so, so what you're going to get is an opportunity to, an opportunity to look under the hood, so to speak, if you have those notes, um, and you'll see how I, how I do this. Um, can't say that I, I do it, well, you'll, you'll get to see. <laughs> I hope I get to see, because my notes, oh, there they are, okay. <laughs> you guys preach to me. <laughs> yeah, so... Well, there you go. That's the like I said. It's a one day only de- deal. Hopefully, one day only. From now, it'll go back to the normal handout with just the scripture and the quotes and the outline. But, but today you get the whole thing. So, well, good morning and welcome to Grace Bible Church. It's always, it's always fantastic. Always good to be here with the the brethren. Uh, as you know, this past Thursday was Thanksgiving, so I should say, uh, right now, late, but happy Thanksgiving. Uh, we, our family, we stayed, uh, t- we came together, and I had, we had, my wife and I had all the children in the house uh, this week on a, few, on a couple of different occasions, and so that was a wonderful time uh, to have everybody there. I think Kayla was the one in and out more than any of them, because uh, she's working in, in the mall, so, but it was a great Thanksgiving for our family, so happy Thanksgiving. Uh, you know, it's interesting, I know we have the Christmas and Easter holidays, uh, but I think that Thanksgiving really is, is should rank high on that on the on the list of on the list of Christian holidays. It's interesting to me that Thanksgiving really is the only holiday that hasn't been completely hijacked by the world. You know, Christmas has become so commercialized, and then there's, you know, there's Santa that, that we have that's portrayed as all-knowing, and then there's Easter, which really is a pagan holiday. I mean, in terms of the name, it comes, has pagan origins. It has its uh, bunny and, and Easter eggs, but Thanksgiving, Thanksgiving has not been completely hijacked, although, unfortunately, the retail world, as you know, has started over the past few years to open up on Thanksgiving. It, it was amazing to me. I looked at I looked at a website of businesses that were opening open. Did you know that Bass Pro was supposed to be open on Thanksgiving? I didn't double check this, but that's what I read on this website. I guess you never know when you might need a bass boat, right? <laughs> yeah. Thankfully, I, I do know this. Thankfully, both Walmart and Target stayed closed at least most of the day to allow their employees to spend time with their families. You know, when I was growing up, nobody. Nobody, no, no stores were open unless it might have been the local grocery store, which would open up for a few hours in the morning. Generally, if you forgot something, you had to borrow it from your neighbor, or you had to just figure out a workaround. We, personally, we lived out in the sticks. Uh, I was 25 miles, we were 25 miles from the nearest store, so that was normal for us. If we, you know, we had to depend upon one another. 
but back to Thanksgiving, I'm unsure for the unbeliever, I'm unsure who they are giving thanks to. I don't mean to sound harsh, but the unbeliever can't acknowledge God, what God has done because they are dead in their trespasses and sins. That's Ephesians 2, 1-3. through 3. It's interesting, the Apostle Paul says that lack of thanksgiving to God is one of the main marks of someone who's unbelieving. Romans 1.21 says, For even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations and their foolish heart was darkened. For the Christian, for the Christian, thanksgiving really should be a way of life, not just one day of the year where we give thanks. As believers, we, we fully understand, or at least we try to understand, what God has accomplished on our, our behalf. In Ephesians 2.4, Paul reminded the, the, the Ephesian church of God's great mercy. You see, we understand, as Christians, we understand the depth of His mercy because we're growing in understanding the depth of our sin. And the fact that He saved us by His grace should raise a, a level of thankfulness that is above, far and beyond what the world could be thankful for. I think Paul really had this in mind later in Ephesians 5.20 when he called the Ephesians to, to always give thanks for all things in the name of the, our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. You may notice that he says that we should give thanks for all things. This includes our trials and sufferings, and it also includes our spiritual and, and physical blessings. You see, we need to acknowledge that God gives all of these things. In Psalm 145, verses 15 and 16, David writes, The eyes of all look to you, and you give them their food in due time. You open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. So in these verses, what David is saying is, is that Physical blessings come from the Lord. Therefore, it is right and good for us to acknowledge both God's spiritual blessings, the fact that as Christians we've been saved by Him through grace, by faith, through faith, by, or by grace through faith, but we also understand as Christians that physical blessings come from Him as well. Now, in the words of David Mathis, Christians are thankful for all God's gifts, especially His eternal gifts, again, that salvation, and especially the surpassing value of knowing His Son. But here's what's interesting. We're not Gnostic, so he says this, the Spirit become physical. What an amazing thought that God became flesh. And we're going to see that coming up in Christmas, right? As we continue to go towards Christmas, we're going to talk more and more about uh, God become flesh, Emmanuel, right? But thankfulness, thankfulness for spiritual and physical blessings should be a major part of our prayer life. And, and prayer should really be a major part of our overall lives, our existence as Christians. Today we're continuing our series called we've called Preparing for Battle. We've completed as, as you know, we've completed the armor of God from 6, 14 through 17. That's Ephesians 6, 14 through 17. Today, we will study prayer from verses 18 to 20. Now, I'll give you a little bit of an insight. I don't believe that prayer is in addition to the armor. I believe that prayer empowers God's armor. 
prayer then should be a way of life for the Christian. And my hope is that prayer would become central, a a central part of the body life here at Grace Bible Church. My prayer would be that we become known for our prayer. And if it really, I've said again, I've said it should be, if it should be a way of life, and if we want prayer to be a primary focus at Grace Bible Church, then we should know how to pray. We should learn all about prayer. So let's dive into this passage. Let me pray. Let me pray. And then I'll read the text and we'll get started. Our gracious Heavenly Father, again, we come to you. We just simply pray right now. We simply just ask that your word would not return void. We ask that you would give power to your word that you would give clarity to the preacher, and that he would decrease so that you might increase. In Christ's name, amen. Let's read the text, starting in Ephesians 6, verse 18. I've titled this sermon, The Soldier's Prayers. Now, notice that that is soldiers, plural. So this is our prayers, and prayers, plural, plural. The idea, and you'll see as we go through here what that, what that means. Starting at verse 18 through 20. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of, of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel. For I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it, I may speak boldly boldly as I ought to speak. Now, we cannot underestimate the power of prayer. We can confidently assert that prayer has shaped the entire world. Over the next few weeks, as I said earlier, we, we will celebrate our Lord's birth. Now, I would argue that the arrival of the Lord Jesus, the most important, critical event that's ever happened in our world was bathed in the prayers of the saints. <coughs> Excuse me. For example, in Luke 2.25, there was a man named Simeon who was looking for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. When Jesus' parents brought the the child Jesus into the temple, Simeon responded by taking Jesus into his arms and praying. Now I want you to just listen to the profound nature of his prayer. He says, starting in verse 29, this is Luke 2, 29, 32. Now, Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace, according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light of revelation to the Gentiles, and the glory of your people Israel. Now clearly, clearly Simeon's prayer was guided by the Holy Spirit. I'm really blown away, if you think about it, that the Messiah's coming, I'm blown away that he recognized, that is, that the Messiah's coming would have had or had worldwide implications. Now, the point that I'm making is, notice that he says that this coming, this, this, this babe that he was praying about was a light of revelation to the Gentiles. 
Where did he get that? You see, Simeon's words didn't come from his flesh. That much is clear. Luke 2.36, in Luke 2.36, he tells us, Luke, that is, tells us of another praying saint who received Jesus in the temple. Starting in verse 36, he writes, And there was a prophetess, Anna, the son of Phanuel, of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. Then as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. Never left the temple serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God. Again, we see her prayers. And continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. You see, Anna's prayers came from a heart of expectation cultivated by a life of prayer. I think these examples teach us that if we desire for the Lord to work mightily in, our, in this world, in our world, we will first and foremost be devoted to prayer. Personally, I, I've said it many times, I pray that God would move mightily in this city. I, I am... I want to see this church have a, an effect that for the gospel, a, a, for, for the gospel in this city. I, I don't back off of that. I pray that many would come to know Christ through the ministry of this church. But I have to recognize that these hopes will not come to fruition outside of the fervent prayers of the saints, of you. It'll never happen if you're not praying. If I'm not praying as one of the saints. In the words of Ian e. Bounds, he says, Every movement for the advancement of the gospel must be created and inspired by prayer. In all these movements of God, prayer precedes and attends as an invariable and necessary condition. In this relation, God makes prayer identical in force and power with Himself and says to those on earth who pray, You are on earth to carry on my cause. I am in heaven, the Lord of all, the Maker of all, and the Holy One of all. Now whatever you need for my cause, ask me and I will do it. You get that? Whatever you ask me, if it's for my cause, I will do it. Shape the future. He goes on to say, shape the future by your prayers and all that you need for, for present supplies. Command me. I made heaven and earth and all these things in them. Ask largely. Open thy mouth and I will fill it. It is my work which you are doing. It concerns my cause. Be prompt and full in praying. Do not abate your asking and I will not wince nor abate in my giving. End quote. Do you believe that? Do you believe that? I do. I believe that God will answer prayer according to His will. I firmly believe that every great man or woman of God are, that have first and foremost been praying saints. First and foremost have been those who are pray, pray, people who pray. The great English preacher C.H. Spurgeon's ministry is known for his powerful preaching. We, we use his sermons even to this day over 125 years later. His sermons are popular even now reading them. But 
Prayer actually was the power plant behind his ministry. This fact is exemplified by the following story. One Sunday prior to the evening service at the Metropolitan Tabernacle, Spurgeon hosted a friend by showing him around the church. His friend asked him, I'm sure honestly asked him, how he managed to maintain the interest of people in the work for so many years, for so, such a long time. Spurgeon replied, he said, it is owing to my heating apparatus. Come and I will show it to you. And he took his friend to the door of a large room in the basement of the church and, and quietly opened it and said, There it is, my heating apparatus. It was the evening prayer meeting. And there were gathered a thousand people who prayed for God's blessing on the service which was to follow. You know, it's interesting. I, the, you know, the, his sermons were written out after he, pray, or after he preached them. And they were sent, and they were published even here in America during that time. So you could get his sermon uh, very quickly after he preached it, even here in America, and be able to read it. But, I mean, that's the, that's the, the, the depth and the width of his, of his ministry. Can, but can you imagine the power of, of a thousand saints praying for the preaching of the gospel? Just think about that. Clearly... Spurgeon's ministry was fueled by the prayers of those dear saints. And he, he's not alone in that distinction. Martin Lloyd-Jones actually is probably one of my favorite preachers. Now, most of, of folks are aware, many folks are aware of Jones's later ministry at Westminster Chapel in London. Yet his 10 years in Wales prior to that at a place called Sandfields are a, are a, is a lesser known period of his ministry. Sandfields was a, a far different place from, from London. When Lloyd-Jones arrived, he, he was actually in London. He was part of, he was part of the, um, the royal m uh, medical folks, I guess you could say. I, I don't know exactly what it's called. But when he arrived from England, several years of bitter labor unrest had brought the area around the church along with the rest of the nation to an economic standstill. <clears throat> Unemployment rates were skyrocketing and the people were suffering for it. Now, most survived at the time with the help of private charity and, and government assistance. Even those who did have jobs were barely getting by. I mean, it was a mess. Any hope of economic recovery was, was muted by their profound suffering. Now, in the midst of this morass, they, they blamed, as you, as you know, as we see even today, they blamed their government, they saw, and they saw the church as simply a place to get a handout. Does that sound familiar? does to me. Jones's ministry in Sandfields led to profound conversions among the people of that place. When he was called to the church there, my, I think as I remember it, they had around 70 members. When he left 10 years later, I think he was almost there 11 years, the ministry had multiplied many times over in that small place. When he arrived, he was driven by the burden that the real problem of the church was not ignorance of the needs of contemporary society. He, he knew people were suffering, right? But he recognized that the people were ignorant of the power of God and His Word. So he refocused the church's attention on the simplicity of prayer, Bible study, and gospel preaching. In the words of in the words of one observer, many pe people today do not realize that in the 20s and 30s, of 1920s and 30s, I guess I can't say just the 20s and 30s anymore because we're in the 20s again, the country of Wales was very close to becoming a foothold for communism. 
in Western, in Western Europe, that is. But by the late 1930s, Martin Lloyd-Jones was being credited as one of the two men most responsible for saving the nation of Wales from communism. And it was his powerful preaching that did the, did the job. Well, we're going to see that it's more than that. As crazy as it sounds, the revival in Sandfields actually began in Lloyd-Jones' home. Beth and his wife was converted under his effective preaching. She had grown up as a, as a cultural Christian, but she hadn't truly converted to Christ until she sat, she married Lloyd-Jones. They, they moved almost immediately to Sandfields. She began to sit under his preaching for about two years, and she was going, wait a minute, I don't think I'm a Christian. Can you imagine that? She came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ because of the, the ministry of her husband. Later in life, she would, she would give us the secret behind her husband's ministry. She says, No one will ever understand my husband until they realize that he is first, he is first of all a man of prayer, then an evangelist, end quote. That's the power of his ministry was his prayer life. Neither Lloyd-Jones nor Spurgeon underestimated the power of prayer to fuel their ministries. In the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, he says, Prayer is beyond any question the highest activity of the human soul. Man is at his greatest and highest when, he, when upon his knees he comes face to face to God. End quote. Charles Spurgeon says, he that knows how to overcome the Lord in prayer has heaven and earth at his disposal, end quote. It's interesting. And we can't let, limit the power of prayer to only the lives of preachers, right? I mean, I mentioned Lloyd-Jones and, and Spurgeon, but Oswald Chambers states that prayer is the vital breath of the Christian, not the thing that makes him alive, but the evidence that he is alive, end quote. Now, the Apostle Paul fully understood these powerful truths about prayer. And he modeled prayer in his daily life and ministry. Now, if we survey Paul's writing, we will find it full of prayer. In Romans 1, 9, and 10, he writes, For God, whom I serve in the Spirit and in the preaching of the gospel of His Son, is my witness as to how unceasingly I make mention of you, always in my prayers, making requests. Colossians 1, 3. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you. 1 Thessalonians 1-2 We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Philemon 4 I thank my God always, making mention of you in my prayers. You see, Paul prayed over and over and over. And we also see... Paul's prayer life modeled in the letter to the Ephesians. And starting in Ephesians 1.15, Paul records a prayer that extends all the way to the end of the chapter. You may not pick up on it as you're reading through, but we're actually reading Paul's prayer for the Ephesians. Now, as we set the stage for our study in Ephesians 6, I want to read this prayer to you, and I want to, there's one other in, in the book. But I want you to notice as I'm reading uh, from 15 to 23, I want you to notice the depth of Paul's prayers for the saints. In Ephesians 1.15, <clears throat> Paul writes, or prays, For this reason, 
For this reason I too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers that the Lord, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father, so now we're seeing the, we're seeing the, the content of his prayer, that the, the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Verse 18, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you will know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints, and what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward those who believe, these in accordance with the working of the strength of his might, which he brought about in, in Christ when, who, when he raised him from the dead and seated him at, the, at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the age to come. And he put all things in subjection under his feet, and he gave him his head over all things to the church, which is the body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Now, I don't know about you, my prayers don't, hear, don't sound like that. They don't sound that way. Now we know that this prayer was under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Right? It's, it's, he's praying in the Spirit. And I don't know about you, but I'm a, a little bit in, intimidated by the depth of the, of the words which Paul uses to pray for the, the believers at Ephesus. You see... Paul wanted that church to recognize the greatness of salvation in Christ. So he prays this profound prayer that they would be enlightened to understand their salvation. Now turn to Ephesians 3 for another example. Verse 14. He writes, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, would, you being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. Then He turns it with his doxology. Now to him, he's praying to God, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. 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 Again, I want you to notice the depth of the prayer. And I also want you to notice the, the upward focus of Paul's prayer. You see, he's definitely not praying man-centered prayers. He's not praying a fleshly prayer. And I would argue that Paul then, in these two prayers, models what it means to pray in the Spirit. Now, it stands to reason that Paul would teach the saints at Ephesus how to pray after modeling prayer for them in his letter. With, now, with that as your introduction... Let's dive into this passage. Now, we're returning again to this section started, which started in Ephesians 
This section is commonly called the armor of God. Now look at 610 where Paul writes, Finally, so he's, he's ending this letter, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Now, Paul's main concern in this section is that the Ephesians would stand firm and would resist the schemes of the devil. We know this because he repeats the call to stand firm three different times. Now, he also says, a fourth time, he also says to resist. So, stand firm and resist. And 6.11, then, he tells the church to put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm. In 6.13, he says, Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist. And having done everything, to stand firm. Now, as we've seen over the past few weeks, verse 13, I would argue, forms the proposition statement for 14 through 17. Now, I would argue, then, that 6.18 through 20 continues that section, which started in verse 10. In other words, in other words, prayer, prayer makes us strong in the Lord and in the strength of His might. Now, again, I said this earlier, I want to be clear, prayer, I don't see prayer as just another piece of the armor. I see prayer as energizing the armor of God. So after having put on the belt of truth, the, the breastplate of righteousness, having shod our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, after take, having taken up the shield of faith, the helmet of salvation, and the sword of the Spirit, we are to pray at all times in the Spirit. So therefore our Spirit-filled prayers give power to this armor and get this, makes our defenses impenetrable. Makes it impenetrable. I mean, there's nothing that can get through it. So after encouraging the Ephesian saints to put on the armor of God to stand firm, Paul then, in verses 18 through 20, further encourages the church at Ephesus to pray. And in doing so, he gives them seven indispensable characteristics of of a Spirit-filled believer's prayers. Now, we're not going to get through all these, considering it's already 15 till, but we'll get through a few of them. So first, first, your prayers must be conscientious. Prayers must be conscientious. Verse 18, look at your text. Now, let me get a little technical with you to help you understand Paul's point. The NASB reads, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. That's the first part of the verse. Now, I think the Net Bible does a good job of translating this first phrase. With the Net Bible translate with every prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. Now you should notice there's a there's a subtle change in translation from all to every. Now I think I personally think every better captures Paul's intent in this first verse, or in this verse. Now it's interesting to me that that the NAS and the Net Bible, which I just did. It translates the verb pray as an imperative. You know what imperative is? So telling someone to do something. The word is actually a participle. 
And to get technical, it's a present middle participle. Therefore, I believe what Paul is actually saying is with every prayer and petition, comma, praying at all times in the Spirit. And so I think what he's doing... Now, well, let me say this first. If you have an NASB with column notes, the translation committee gives praying as an alternate translation. Now, most likely, they chose the imperative verb because it flows better, and it may be more understandable to bring out the imperative, imperatival force, meaning that, that Paul, had, there is a sense of, of command here. There is that. But I think what, what Paul is saying is ultimately he's calling for the church to be diligent in the prayers. I mean, and understand that every prayer that we pray should be prayed in a certain way. Now, in a moment, we're going to see that he's calling, in a moment, the next phrase, we're going to see that he's calling the saints to pray in the Spirit and to pray at all times. But for now, I, I want us to recognize that we can't be flippant in our prayers. We, we have to recognize that we are praying to the God of the universe. And every prayer that we pray should be understood in this way. Now, as those in Christ, we have been given access through Him, through Christ, to the very throne room of God, have we not? So in Christ, then, we see this clearly in Ephesians 3, <clears throat> we are His adopted children. We are His adopted children. We're, we're we're firstborn sons in Christ. As such, according to Ephesians 3.12, we have boldness and confident access through faith in Him. So what we need to recognize is, is that we have the honor of having this type of access to the Father. I mean, we have direct access. We have confident access to the Father. But He's the creator of the universe. We never should forget that, that, under, that tension that's there. He is our Father, but we never should forget who are, we are coming in the presence of. Never take it for granted. I'm reminded of the flippant prayers of the hypocrites. In Matthew 6, 5, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus warned, When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. And, I mean, we must be conscientious, if you will, using that word. I, I use the C word. I, I like the alliterations. But we must be diligent to pray in a way that pleases our Father. Now, let me be clear. I'm not making prayer formulaic. I'm making prayer formulaic. God desires for us to pray. He wants us to approach Him in faith. He wants us to approach Him with the faith of a child, even. Our prayers, <clears throat> let me just say this very clearly. Our prayers don't have to be complicated. But they must be genuine. They don't have to be complicated, but they must be genuine. I believe that Martin Lloyd-Jones captures this balance well. He says, we should go into his presence as a child goes to his father. We do it with reverence and godly fear, of course, but we should go with a childlike confidence and simplicity, end quote. 
When you pray, God wants your earnest, spirit-led prayers. He wants you to come with a childlike confidence and simplicity. He wants you to humbly approach His throne. He wants you to bring every concern to Him. He wants all those things. Now let's look at the second indispensable characteristic of a believer's prayer. Your prayers must be constant. Prayers must be constant. Notice Paul says pray, pray or praying at all times. Praying at all times. In 1 Thessalonians 5, 16-18, Paul gives a similar instruction. He says, rejoice always, pray without ceasing. That sounds simple, doesn't it? But this instruction is not limited to just Paul. In Luke 18, Jesus tells a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray, the people listening, they ought to pray and not lose heart. In that parable, he describes a judge. Just, just listen to him. He says this. This is Luke 18, verse 1. He said, Now he was telling him them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not to lose heart saying, In a certain city there was a judge who did not fear God and did not respect man. There was a widow in that city, and she kept coming to him, saying, Give me legal protection from my opponent. For, while he was unwill For a while he was unwilling, but afterward he said to himself, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection. Otherwise, by continually coming, she will wear me out. Now, clearly... This woman, I mean, the, the point of the story is that she kept coming to the judge. She would not give up. Now, I don't know if you've ever been around somebody like that, but they can wear you out. And he wouldn't give her an answer. But she was so persistent that he answered her to stop her constant onslaught. I mean, he answered her because he's like, I, don't, I, I can't put up with this. Now listen to Jesus' word words in Luke 18, 6 and 7. And the Lord said, Hear what the unrighteous judge said. <clears throat> now will not God bring about justice for his elect who cry to him day and night, and will he, delay, will he delay long over them? You see, God is calling us. In this parable, Jesus' point is that God wants us to continually come to Him with our prayers and petitions. He wants us to be in constant communication with Him. He wants prayer for us to be like breathing. Yet He doesn't want your prayers to be mindless repetition either. He just wants you to talk to Him and cast your cares upon Him. But Jesus warned against Mindless repetition in Matthew 6, 7. It says, when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose they will be heard for their many words. He doesn't want your meaningless prayer. And he doesn't want radio silence either. He wants you to be in conversation with him at all times. John Bunyan says, in prayer it's better to have heart without words than words without heart. Prayer will make a man cease from sin, or sin entice a man to cease from prayer. The spirit of prayer is more precious than the tre than treasures of gold and silver. Pray often, for prayer is a shield to the soul, a sacrifice to God, and a scourge for Satan. Now let me tell you what I don't mean about constant prayer. 
as Christians, we don't have to walk around with our hands folded in prayer at all times. That's not the point. We don't have to stay in our prayer closets, if you will, with the door shut. You're, you know, with your spouse shoveling food under the, under the door so you can keep praying. Now, let me just say this and be clear. There, there are times for a prayerful posture, or a, a, assuming a prayerful posture, but, and, and there's nothing wrong with having a place to go pray. Uh, praying aloud, whether alone or in groups, is a wonderful practice, so it's not that. But we need to recognize that God hears our prayers even when we don't verbalize them. He hears us. He hears us as we pray. For us to pray without ceasing, then we must be in recurring prayer as we go along our way. Prayer, then, is to be a way of life for the believer. The Word, the word of God should be our food while prayer is the air that we breathe. Does that make sense? We, continue, we are to continually stay in an attitude of prayer. In the words of John MacArthur, praying without ceasing is living in continual God consciousness, where everything you see and experience becomes, becomes a kind of prayer, lived in deep awareness of and surrender to Him. It should be instant and an intimate, an intimate, it should be instant and intimate communication, not unlike that which we enjoy with our best friend. So, you know, you go along with your best friend and you're just talking to them, right? I mean, it's not, there's, there's nothing labored about it. And that's what we are to be with our Lord, again, without being flippant about it. Practic- practically, then, we pray without ceasing by confessing our temptations to God and asking for His help. So when you're tempted in something, you pray. You, you also do, do it by immediately thanking Him when we experience something good, lovely, or beautiful. I, I, I often, it's interesting, I often will experience something like, you know, I like losing your keys and you can't find them, and, and I pray to the Lord, you know, Lord, can you help me find them? And then I find them and I forget to, to thank Him for finding them, but I remember it later. But, but the point is, when something happens that's good, pray. Thank Him. If you see something lovely, thank Him. If you see something beautiful, thank Him for creating that. You also need to pray by crying out to God, when you experience evil in your midst, asking Him to wipe it out, begging Him to use you if that's His will, by praying, praying for God to deliver you when you encounter great difficulty or strife. I mean, He uses those things in our life, but He also wants us to pray. He wants us to ask for His help. He wants us to depend upon Him. And also pray without ceasing by pleading with God to save an unbeliever. So an unbeliever comes in your life and you, and you see them and you've, you've, they've made a shipwreck of their life. It's pretty clear. You can see all the trouble and strife in their life. Pray. 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 And also, every time you meet a longtime acquaintance or a family member who, who is yet to come to Christ, pray. Pray for them. I mean, you, you continually, just continually loft those prayers up. As, again, Martin Lloyd-Jones captures these things well. He says, always respond to every impulse to pray. The impulse to pray may come when you're reading or when you're battling with a text. I would make an absolute law of this. Always obey such an impulse, end quote. See, these, these impulses to pray may come in many forms, but the one constant is that we should always pray. I'll never forget, when I, back when I was working in Nevada, 
one of our supervisors, we, we were recognizing him in, in a plant meeting, and at the time he was having some immigration issues with his wife and kids. He had to send them back to Mexico until she could get a return visa. And during that meeting, though, I, I don't know why, but I was overwhelmed by an impulse to pray for him and his family. So I, in the midst of this meeting, I mean, he was the focus, not, not me, but I quietly bowed my head and prayed for him right there. I thought no one was watching me at the time, or at least that's what I thought. After the meeting, he asked me if I had been praying for him. I, and I was, and I told him I was. And after that, we developed a close relationship, and I prayed for that young man many times. Now, I may not know, I don't know the full answer to that prayer on this side of glory. I don't. But I know this, I didn't ignore the impulse to pray for that young man. He still comes to my mind time and again. He'll come to my mind as I go along, and I remember to pray for Mario. I don't even know where he's at right now, but I still pray for him. Let's look at the third indispensable characteristic. Your prayers must be controlled by the Spirit. Your prayers must be controlled by the Spirit. <clears throat> Look at 6.18, he says, pray at all times in the Spirit. Now back in Ephesians 5.18, Paul had told the saints at Ephesus, do not get drunk with, with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. And in 5.20, in 5.20 he explains that part of being filled with the Spirit is an attitude of always giving thanks for all things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father. So clearly there's a tie between prayer and the Holy Spirit of God. Now, I'm certain there are many questions regarding what it means to pray in the Spirit, so we need to take some time to define this. Now, we'll, we'll start looking at it today, and then we'll pick back up here next week. But, now, again, anytime there's a reference to the Holy Spirit, there are many questions. And, as you know, there, there are probably many differences of, of opinion, even within this building, regarding the ministry of the Holy Spirit. And I can't clear up all those questions in one sermon, or probably even a series of sermons, but... But we can explore this idea of praying in the Spirit and what that means. Now, with the remaining time today, I want to use a trick by Martin Lloyd-Jones where he, he was known for contrasting the truth by, with its polar opposite. So he, he sets you up by saying it can't be these things and therefore it has to be, be this. So in, the case, in this case, the polar opposite of praying in the Spirit is what? Praying in, pray in the flesh, right? So what does it mean to pray in the flesh? Well, it means to depend upon human effort to carry the prayer. Now, we've seen a couple of examples of praying in the flesh already. Remember Matthew 6, 5, Jesus warned not to pray like the hypocrites to be seen by men. So we define a hypocrite as someone who acts one way when others are watching, but, in, and, but another way when no one sees. Now, these people, these hypocrites, were praying to be seen by others. That would be a fleshly way to pray. We don't pray in order to be seen by others. And Jesus gives another example of this type of prayer in Luke 18, verses 10 through 12, where Luke writes, two men, this is the Lord Jesus speaking, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. Now the Pharisee was the religious of the two, right? The tax collector was looked down upon. The, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. 
I fast twice a week. I pay tithes of all that I get. Now, clearly, the content of this man's prayer was not out of humility, or out of humility but out of pride in comparing himself to others. His prayers then were me-centered. It was all about him. Therefore, they were fleshly prayers. In Matthew 6-7, we looked at it earlier, Jesus warned of praying meaningless repetition. Therefore, mindlessly repeating something like the Lord's Prayer over and over is praying in the flesh. Mindlessly repeating formulaic prayers such as the rosary is praying in the flesh. Some, Some of the conduct might be good, like the Lord's Prayer. I mean, that's part of the rosary, right? I think. Uh, But just reciting words doesn't constitute praying in the Spirit. So if praying in the flesh means to depend upon human ability, then we must be able to discern how we might be praying in that way, how we might be praying fleshly prayers. Now, some of us may struggle and want to give up praying after a short time. So we try and, and, and we want to give up. But if we respond in the flesh, then we may focus on how long we pray. You, you understand what I'm saying? So if we struggle to pray longer prayers and stay praying, we, we want to give up, then our answer in the flesh might be that we're going to focus on how long I pr- we pray. Uh, and, and the longer prayers become the standard that we set for ourselves. But we have to understand that the length of our prayers don't make them spirit-filled. Some of us struggle with knowing what to say in our prayers. But, but again, it would be fleshly to turn to repetitious, mindless, formulaic prayers and just saying the same thing over again, mindlessly, right? I mean, it's, it's a mindless thing. I, I love the Lord's Prayer. I love it. But don't, don't just sit and re- recite it without thinking about it. I mean, God gave you a brain, use it. Some of us may struggle with prayers that are dead or feel dead. But we shouldn't focus on trying to make our, our prayers perfect. Jason Meyer said, has said, sometimes we subtly trust in having perfectly composed, doctrinally correct prayers that rely upon the right diction, cadence, language, emotion, and volume. I'm... Don't get me wrong, I'm, I'm okay if somebody writes out a prayer, and they do it, and, they, and it's beautiful. I'm, I'm okay with that. But don't think that you're praying, somehow praying better because you did it. That's fleshly. That's fleshly. I'd rather, I, I'd rather somebody pray, and, and you know it's heartfelt, and, and they just say, Lord, I love you. I mean, I'd rather it be that if it's not going to be spirit-led. And again, in the words of Martin Lloyd-Jones, the Spirit is a spirit of life as well as truth. And the first thing that he does, always does, is to make everything living and vital. And of course, there is all the difference in the world between life and liveliness produced by the Spirit and the kind of artifact, the bright and breezy imitation produced by people, end quote. I mean, in other words, he's saying these fleshly prayers are just a bunch of hot air. Just a bunch of hot air. You see, praying in the Spirit is opposite of praying in the flesh. In Luke 18, we saw the example of the Pharisee praying in the flesh. I would argue that the tax collector who prays after that 
gives us an example of praying in the Spirit. In Luke 18, 13, Jesus describes this man's prayer. He says, But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was unwilling even to lift his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. It's a wonderful prayer. It's a wonderful prayer. It's a wonderful model for a Spirit-filled, Spirit-led prayer. Notice the humility of his prayer. Everything about his posture showed that he understood his dilemma. He knew his place. He wouldn't even approach others because he perceived them as being more holy than him. He understood his sinfulness before a holy God. He was unwilling even to lift his eyes to heaven. He recognized his sinful flesh because he was beating his chest. His words showed that he knew God to be a merciful God. Only the Spirit can reveal that. Jesus says in verse 14, I tell you, this man went to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. And I'm telling you, you cannot pray spirit-led prayers unless you're praying them in humility. Praying in the Spirit, then, is prayer that's carried along by the Holy Spirit. It's like riding down that hill. It just, we just go. Nothing can stop us. And it's not because of our effort. It's not because of human effort. And, you know, we're going down the hill on the skateboard, it's the gravity, right? When we're praying in the Spirit, it's the Spirit that's carrying us forward. No matter its form, Spirit-filled prayer is first and foremost fully dependent upon the Spirit. I would argue that's what Paul had in mind in Romans 8, 23-27. He says, he says, but not only this, but we, are, we also, we ourselves, having the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved, but hope is, that is seen is not hope, for, for, who hopes, for who hopes for what he, has already, or what he already sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. Now, what's going on, this is Romans 8, 23-25, what's going on is Paul is saying that as Christians, we have been given the Spirit of God, yet we are waiting on the redemption of our bodies. We're still in the flesh, but yet we hope for our glorified bodies, that full redemption. In the meantime, in the meantime, we've been given the Spirit as a pledge of our inheritance, which guarantees our future redemption. And now, here's what he says in verse 26. So we've, we've been saved, we've been given the Spirit, but we're hoping for this future glorification. But he says this in verse 26, In the same way, the Spirit also helps our weakness, for we do not know how to pray as we should, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, And he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. Now, some may argue with me. I get that. But I don't believe that Paul is referring to some prayer language here. Notice he says in verse 26 that the Spirit uses groanings too deep for words. I would argue that this is a glimpse of the inter-Trinitarian relationship between the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. So when we pray in the Spirit, we are giving 
given something much more incredibly powerful than a prayer language. I believe that praying in the Spirit is is tapping into those magnificent, powerful resources available within the Trinity. Again, that goes back. Remember he said, he said that they, we would understand the surpassing greatness or the surpassing greatness of, the God, of our God. I mean, I think that that's what's going on here is that we're tapping into the very power of God when we pray in the Spirit. If that doesn't get you wound up about prayer, I don't know what will. Now, as I said, next week we'll explore this more fully as we continue through his powerful words. But you may be sitting here as we get ready to close. You may be sitting here thinking, I don't know how to pray. I mean, you've said a lot of stuff, but I don't know how to pray. In response, I would say there may be two problems, two kind of people in this world. There are believers and there's unbelievers, right? Either you're a Christian or you're not. If you're a Christian and you're struggling to pray, then my advice to you would be start praying. Start. Open thy mouth and let the words come out. Pray it from your heart. It doesn't matter that you, that you pray poor prayers, if you will. I, they, they're not because you're praying in the Spirit, if you're being Spirit-led, right? <clears throat> Just listen to Chambers. Oswald Chambers. I, I, I said E.M. Chambers in my notes. <laughs> Make mistakes all the time. Oswald Chambers. The prayer of the feeblest saint who lives in the Spirit and keeps right with God is a terror to Satan. The very powers of darkness are paralyzed by prayer No spiritual seance can succeed in the presence of a humble, praying saint. No wonder Satan tries to keep our minds fussy and active work till we cannot think in prayer, end quote. I I, I don't care how poor your prayers are. As Chambers has said, the very powers of darkness are paralyzed by the praying prayers of the saints. I know that some of you can struggle with the words to say in prayer. I say if you see something that is evil, start praying. If you meet an unbeliever living out the consequences of their sins, pray for them. Lord, save them. It may be that simple. Lord, save them. If you're met with trials on every side, pray to God for wisdom. Lord, I don't know what to do. Help me. And trust Him for that answer. I mean, it's that simple. It's that simple. But, but if you're not a Christian, it's not that simple. But it is simple. You need to call out to Christ. You need to call out to Christ to save you. Now, you may ask, well, why Jesus? Why not Buddha or Muhammad or any other of a pantheon of gods? Well, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So, if you're here today and you don't know Christ, call out to Him. Call out to Him. He came to to this earth as a babe in the manger. We're about to celebrate Christmas coming up. 
He came here to experience all that we experience. He would have all that we experience. He was tempted in all ways by by Satan, yet he never sinned. He was in the, the words of John the Baptist. He was the sinless Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. He beckons you to come. He beckons you to come. He went to the cross. Not for his sins, but for ours. He beckons you to believe. If you're here today and you don't know him, cry out to him right now in your heart. Pray. (laughs) Pray to him. Pray to him. And he will save you. I promise. If you ask, you ask, genuinely ask him to save you, he will save you. He will not, he will not. Nah, not you. That's not how our Lord works. If the Holy Spirit today has laid anything on your heart regarding this sermon, or if you want to know the way to salvation, just get with me, get with they, Phil, or simply pull someone aside that you know to be mature in Christ and ask them. Ask them. Don't let the day go by. Heavenly Father, we thank you this, this day for your goodness to us. Father, I do pray that this would be a praying church. I do pray that we would just develop, just be constant, develop a constancy in our prayers. That they would be prayed in the Spirit, controlled by the Spirit. We wouldn't be flipping about them. But we would understand that we're coming into the very throne room. We wouldn't approach a president in a flippant way. So much more so should we not approach you in a flippant way. Yet, Lord, you receive us in Christ. So we're thankful, Lord, for your goodness to us. Father, I pray if there be anyone here that doesn't know you, I pray that they would cry out to you even now. That they would look to the cross where you sent your Son to take upon Himself our sin so that we wouldn't have to suffer the wrath He suffered in our our place. Father, may we look upon Him. In Christ's name, amen.